Amen. Thank you, Jen. Yeah, you guys take a seat. All right. Well, good, well, good morning to Valley. Uh, in case you're new or just visiting with us, like Justin said, my name is Wes. Wes, one of the pastors for Church of the Valley. And preaching like this isn't my normal gig. Uh, usually Justin is teaching, and uh, Josh and I trade off on leading, leading most weeks. But uh, I always enjoy getting to be led by Justin uh, in song, and uh, honestly, teaching like this is really fun for me. So uh, thanks for the, op- the opportunity today to share with you. Uh, with that said... There's an old hymn that says, I need, I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. And in the case for all of us, we need Jesus to intervene, to provide, to sustain us. But sometimes he allows circumstances in our lives that make, make that really uh, a particularly clear reality. Uh, our passage today will certainly highlight that in a very graphic way, uh, but my life bears it out this week as well. I'm stepping into to today. Many as you, many of you are too. You sense of weariness and a very palpable need need for God to move and power this morning. And I do think that the Lord has us exactly where He wants us, and so uh, uh, we submit ourselves to You, Jesus. Do what you want. Command what you will, but do what you command. Amen? Okay, let's dig in. Uh, so, so whenever we passage of scripture, whether it's corporately or privately, we want to first pray and ask the Lord to illuminate the, illuminate the text. Jen, thank you for doing that uh, for us. Uh, and then, then as we begin to ruminate on the text a little bit, the, bit, the first thing to do is to observe what is happening in this passage, are there any significant social or historical contexts that I need to be aware of? Who are these people? Does anything is odd or confusing? Uh, honestly, there were so many things that stood out to me here that uh, I was excited to talk about. And last night, like, I just went to bed, like, late. I was kind of reviewing my notes, and I was like, I, we don't have time. So... Um, we cut a lot. I cut a lot. I cut a lot uh, to get down to just just the heart of what I think is like the main thing. Um, um, read for us the first sixteen verses of this chapter. Uh, ne- next, we'll be we'll be picking up in verse seven. So we're actually today only looking at the first six verses. But I wanted you to see a little more of the context context passage, um, just to kind of help us wrap our head. A little more around um, what's happening here as we sort of turn the corner into this new chapter. Uh, uh, so we're going to focus our attention on verses one through six, but there are some significant people, places, and events around those six. Those six verses warrant a few minutes of our time, just so that we uh, can get at the meaning and ultimately the direction that God would have you, would have, you, have our lives do in light of what's happening here. Okay, so. Uh, Particularly, I want to look at the time and place. 
What about the time and place? This is actually going to prove to be really significant. Significant. Uh, so Jesus, we talked about this last week, Jesus has just left Judea because uh, he claimed there in Jerusalem to be equal to God, which the, the leaders of the Jews wanted to kill him for that because they considered Jesus' claim to be equal to God blasphemy. Uh, it would have been blasphemy if it wasn't true, but the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, an eternal member of the Trinitarian, Trinitarian God, that makes it not blasphemy. Uh, and, and that's what he's been doing all these, all these mirrors so far to try to prove or give evidence of, uh, and particularly the miracle that he's about to, about to do, which we'll be discussing over the coming weeks, aiming to, to give evidence of the fact that he really is the Son of God. Okay, So anyway, he, he gets into some hot water for claiming to be who he really is. The Jews didn't like that, so he goes to, across the Jordan, back to where John had been baptizing, uh, to teach there. All right, let, let things off a little bit. And now, word comes from Bethany in Judea, which is very close to Jerusalem. So just recently left because the people there want to kill him. Word comes from Bethany, Bethany that his friend is sick. And getting word to Jesus that Lazarus is sick, sick, taking someone at least a day, about a day's journey from Bethany to where he was, okay? And the text tells us that Jesus waits two days, and then he goes back to where Lazarus is, but then there's that one-day journey back, back to Bethany, okay? So uh, if we look forward, uh, I should say, like, spoiler alert, right? If this is your first time reading the book of John, uh, Lazarus is going to die. And so uh, Jesus is going to, good news there, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but we're going to get to that part of the story for like three weeks. Um, so I'm kind of setting up this new chapter of the story, but, but a lot of details that'll get filled in over the next several weeks. So sorry for the spoilers, but Lazarus dies. Um, so we learn that Lazarus, when, when Jesus gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days, okay? So there's a strong chance because the one day that it took to get to Jesus, and then the two days that he waits, and then, and then the one that it takes him to go to Bethany, that's how many days? Four. So there's a pretty good chance that Lazarus is already dead. The messenger gets to Jesus to tell him that Lazarus is sick and might die. Now Jesus knows that. He's God. He's been trying to show that for a while now, right? knows, as the story seems to indicate, the outcome of Lazarus's sickness before he even leaves uh, the Jordan. And so he says that the illness does not lead to death, okay? He, he knows that Lazarus is either already dead or he's about to be, and he says it's not going to end in death, end in death. And then he waits long enough for Lazarus's body, body decomposing before he heads over to see him. Okay, like verse 39 is going to tell us that that his sisters, Mary and Martha, are concerned about opening up the tomb. Tomb is going to be stinky in there. Okay, now why is that significant? Um, This is, is chapter is going to tell us about a different kind of miracle. Okay, and Jesus is making it a point 
to underscore that reality that this is different. And John wants to make sure that we see it in which we're looking at today. And, and so uh, he sets up this seventh miracle in his gospel account. And like, and like John a little bit, like read some of his other letters, read the Revelation, like he's kind of obsessed with this number seven, like it's significant to John, to John, okay? Um, this chapter tells us about a very pivotal uh, miracle, okay? It's a, a turning point in John's gospel. Remember, remember he wrote this book long after the events that he's telling us about, and he's always given us the details that he gives us particularly John chapter 20, 20, verse 30 says, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. So John isn't wasting words just to tell a good story. There's a point to all of this, to all of this. And the things that Jesus says and the way that he waits around before going to help his friend are meant to highlight the very thing that Jesus was saying in last week's text, namely that Jesus is the Son of God and equal to God. So what's special about this miracle? Um, I, it was many years ago, uh, kayaking in uh, North, North Georgia, Sea Creek. It's one of those like, steep creeks in North Georgia that you, you only get to kayak if, if it's been much and everything else is is too high and too dangerous. Um, so I was super excited to go there with some friends and kayak, but, but uh, long story short, my friend Talia was behind me, and she had a bad line on uh, one of the larger rapids. She got stuck in a place where the current kind of recirculates uh, after a drop, and so, and so uh, she was in there. She couldn't get out. Uh, by the time that uh, her husband and I got kind of up to the side to, tr- to try to help her get out, she had already worn out, and she'd come out of her kayak, but she passed out, and she drowned there in the, in the, the current. And so uh, I can remember running up the bank of, bank of this waterfall and then seeing her body just lifeless, just float down, uh, face down. And so we rushed down, rushed down, pull her out. Um, my friend Kevin is an EMT, and he was there, and we got her body out onto the bank and uh, began to pull her life jacket off and just try to get her breathing again. And I can, can remember uh, as Kevin was yelling at her, Talia, breathe, breathe, uh, just praying and pleading with God to, sa- to save her, save her life, save her life. Um, she was like gray and her lips were blue and her eye. I mean, she, she, was li- she was light. But my prayer was, God, save her, not God, resurrect her. her. She had just drowned, right? And uh, I can remember being, getting down and getting ready to start uh, uh, keep breathing, and she, she coughed, and she started breathing again. And, uh, we were able to finally get search and rescue there to, to help, and so she was okay, but at the end of that event, I didn't say, God, thanks for bringing her back to life. I said, God, like, thank you for saving her life, right? Like, she was resuscitated on the bank of Mossy Creek, right? Um, Luke, in his gospel, actually records two other people that Jesus raised from the dead. Dead. Uh, there was a, a widow's son in Luke 7 and Jairus' daughter in Luke, in Luke 8. But both, in both cases, they had just recently died, and he brought them back. 
So just to, just to be that no one confuses this resurrection of Lazarus with a mere resuscitation, not that that's a small deal, Jesus waits around long enough for the body to start de- decomposing, okay? He's not going to leave any room for doubt here. Lazarus isn't just dead when, dead when Jesus is He's dead, dead, okay? He's like stinky dead. And so we find ourselves at the, begin, at the beginning passage in just the first six verses today. We're going to read those again and talk about what's the big idea that's wrapped up here that's so important that John made sure or us about it in this way as he was writing this gospel account. Okay, so that's the setting that we find ourselves in, what's come before and what's coming after. And here we are. We're going to read these verses again, verses 1 through 6. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So I sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified, glorified through. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Okay, so here's the big idea that I want us to see. And we're going to unpack this a little bit together, but the big idea is God is at all times pursuing his own glory, and he loves us. Chew on that a little bit while I get a sip of coffee. Those are two really gigantic concepts that are consistently taught throughout all of the Bible. Another way to say it would be, one, God's glory is paramount to his purposes. And two, God loves his people. Those two realities are in no way contrary or at odds with one another. They are both equally at all times true. God doesn't weigh out on a scale the celebration of his glory on the one, one, love for his people on the other, as if to make sure they're in balance with one one another. There's no cosmic tug of war or trade-off occurring between God's glory and his love. 100% always pursues his glory or else he wouldn't be God. And God 100% always loves his people or else he wouldn't be God. It's a matter of his identity as God. His Godness is wrapped up two realities. Not only these, these, but these are inseparable attributes which describe God of the Bible. His glory is paramount to his purposes, and he loves his people. His people. Let's look at it in the text. Verse 4 says, But when Jesus, Jesus heard, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God, Son of God, be glorified through it. So why is Lazarus sick? So that God can display his glory, so that, that Jesus be glorified. 
John MacArthur pointed out that the miracle of Lazarus from the dead evidences Jesus' glory in three ways. One, it pointed to Jesus' deity, just the fact, that, the fact that he could. Two, it strengthened the faith of the disciples. And three, it led dead to the cross. So Jesus deciding, which we'll see next week, deciding to go back across the Jordan and into Judea was a domino that began a chain of events that led him directly to the cross, which is the, which is the way that Christ is glorified through the salvation of his people. So why is Lazarus sick? So that Jesus will be glorified through it. Why do bad things happen? So Jesus will be glorified through it. Why, why does anything happen? So that Jesus will be glorified through it. Through it, God is all about his glory. Now, I know that that passage, passage we four doesn't explicitly say that all things happen for the glory of God. It's really particularly about the sickness and death of Lazarus. So I want to look at just a few passages, if you will, with me. The Bible is just brimming over with evidence of this reality. And the more you look for it, the more, for it, the more you see it. It's like in trying to help us understand who God is, biblical writers just couldn't help themselves, but to keep reminding us of this fact. And I think it's because, because we, as human beings are so self-exalting that we need lots of reminders that we are not the center of our God is the blazing center from which all things live and move and have their being. We are tiny and he is great. We are our only significant when we find our significance in him. As John Piper said, everything plugs into God. To God. He plugs into nothing. So let's check out these passages and note that these that I've selected are, are all specifically about God's glory in the act of saving, saving, serving his people. Okay, so we're going to look at Ezekiel 36. I would encourage you, if you have your Bible or grab the one from the seat behind, deep behind, uh, to turn here, Ezekiel 36, 22 through 32. I'm not going to read this whole passage, but just pull some highlights that, that show this, but it's worth taking the whole thing in, so you can kind of soak it in, get in as I cross it. But Ezekiel 36, uh, 22 through 32. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of, o house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. The end of verse 23 says, and the nations will know, I'm going to display this, the nations will know that I am the Lord declares the Lord, declares the Lord, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Verse 26 says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. He, okay, the prophet here is talking about something that's going to happen, happen in Acts 2, many, many hundreds of years later, okay? When the Holy Spirit would come to the church after Jesus' ascension and the church is established, all right, and the gospel begins to go forth. So, the prophet here says, prophet here says, I will, speaking for God, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove a stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, statutes, careful to obey my rules, 
And verse 32 says, It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 through 9, God says, I am the Lord, and I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, people, nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness, all good things, things that be the recipients of. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Verse 9 says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I new things I now before they spring forth, I tell them, I tell you of them. Finally, Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. Paul writes, but God, writes, but God being rich in mercy because of the great which he loved us. So pause, pause, there's that reality. God is 100% always the lover of his people. people. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But then he goes on in verse, on in verse 7 to say, so that, so why, why did God save us? Yes, because of his love. But there was something else at work. He says, he says verse, so that in the coming ages, he might show, display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So it's not just that he loves us, but it's that he needs and wants to display and show his love and mercy to put it on display, as it were. As it were. And Paul goes on to say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a, res- not a result, said, so that no one may boast. The Westminster Confe- Confession of Faith, uh, many of you are familiar with, says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the best, that's the best possible outcome, the primary reason we were created and exist is to glorify and enjoy God. And it turns out that that's true because we're made in the image of God and the chief end of God to glorify God and enjoy God forever. So follow me closely on this train, okay? It's a problem if you or I celebrate the way that God celebrates himself, okay? Because uh, uh, I suck, and so do you, all right? But it's, but it's not a problem for him because he's God. He literally is the best and should be celebrated as such. In fact, anything less than demanding that all of creation should celebrate as the best, would in fact make God a liar. God would be sinning and therefore, therefore would be God to suggest that anything in all of his, his creation should be celebrated more than who he is. Because God is true and it, and it I that anything is more worthy of praise than him. As a, a basic and eternal fact of his existence, he must insist, insist all things bring him glory. If he didn't, he wouldn't be God. And if he was God, he wouldn't love us the way that he does because God, God is love. 
So if you grew up hearing of God, either from within or outside the church, then there's a good chance that one of these two realities were were presented in a skewed way. Either you heard, Jesus loves you so much. You're so special. Jesus died for you because he loves you so much. You're so important. Or you heard, God is distant, unknown. You're a sinner. He could never love you. And the challenge for us today and where God wants to be is standing and fully accepting the reality that God does love us 100%. And, and that he'd, in fact, pursue his own glory and glory and praise of all else, 100%. Why is it such a big deal that God loves you? Because in light of his holiness and our sin, he shouldn't. The Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Is death. It's a big deal that God loves us because he shouldn't. We don't deserve it. And, and it makes love sweeter to know that he loves us anyway. Now, why is it such a big deal that God big deal that holy and always focused on his glory? Because the only, only God who can rightfully claim that all things exist for his glory, who is so mighty that he speaks, he speaks and men come out of the grave. That God loves you and wants to be known and loved by you. So listen, all of the circumstances we face in life are controlled by a God who loves us and will work all things good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That's Romans 8, 28. Maybe some, maybe some love is sick or dying, or maybe you just lost someone like Mary and Martha. Or, may, or maybe think of any other tough circumstance, big or small, that you're facing right now. God, God, he is good. He is allowing it because he loves you. And because in the cosmic mystery of his eternal plans, it will someday turn out for his glory and for your good. Now, that doesn't mean that every time we ask for healing or lean or life or relief, that we'll get it. Sometimes, sickness and even death may, in fact, in fact be determined to be his plan for his people, but his plans or sins are still good. Maybe just like Mary and Martha, you've asked for help, and it just seems like, it just seems like it's waiting silent, a day away. Verses 5 and 6 of this passage say that Jesus loved Martha, Mary, Mary, Lazarus. Did you see that? Verse 5 says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, what did he do because of his love? When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He was. Jesus' waiting may well be, be the prophet of his love for you rather than of his distance or lack of care. Second War 17 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight 
of glory beyond all comparison. It doesn't mean that the silent and the waiting is, is easy or that it feels good. It doesn't. But when the, when the answer you're pleading for help is silence, know that God is still at work. He's still on his throne. Good. He's at work producing for you an eternal way of glory beyond all comparison. And you're in good company. Are you with the parable of the persistent widow? Jesus tells this story about a widow who uh, injustice had been done to her, and so she goes to a judge, and she begs for justice. She pleads, and he, and he ignores her. And so she keeps going and pleading for, for justice, pleading for justice, until eventually she just wears the guy down. And he's like, fine, fine, I'll do it. And Jesus tells this story, and at the end of the story, he's talking about prayer and pleading with, and pleading with God. And at the end of the story, he says, and when the Son of Man returns, will he find such faith and faith among men? In other words, when we pray and the answer is silence, or when we pray and the answer is no, trust enough in those moments in the goodness and the power of God to ask again. See, I think oftentimes the silence of God is actually, and we should receive it as, an opportunity to see our faith increase. To say, I still trust you because I know who your word, word says and I will continue to ask. We're in good company when we experience the silence. The silence. David said in the Psalms, My tears have been my food day, day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? And even Jesus, in the garden, on the night that he was betrayed for a way out, he didn't want to go to the cross. But God's plan for him was the cross. And so the only answer he got that night was silence. And thank God for all, all our it was. Do you see how the silence of God there was for the good of, of many? And it, it even says later that Jesus, for the joy sat before him, before him the cross. It was for his joy and his exaltation as well. Praise God, by his stripes, we were healed. Um, if you, you experienced, and I, and I think it's a fairly universal Christian experience sometimes to feel the silence of God, uh, or maybe you are feeling that now, um, I want to read to you the, the lyrics to his song. Andrew Peterson out of Nashville, Tennessee, is one of my, my favorite songwriters, and uh, his song, The Silence of God, captures... Uh, the emotions experience better than I could ever dream to. Dream to. So I'm going to read these uh, lyrics. I'll have them on the screen. I'm just going to read these out to you as we kind of put our put our hearts in the space of the silence of God. It's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break him. It'll break a man. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. When he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod, and the heavens only answer is the silence of God. God. It'll shake a man's timbers when he loses his heart, when he has to remember what broke him apart. This yoke may be easy, but this burden is not. When the, when the cry yields are frozen by the, si the silence of God. 
And if a man has got to listen to the voices of the mob, the mob who are reeling in the throes of all the happiness they've got, when they tell you all their troubles have been nailed up to that cross, cross about the time when even followers get lost. Because we all get lost sometimes. There's a statue of Jesus on a monastery knoll in the hills of Kentucky, all quiet and cold, and kneeling in the garden, as silent as a stone. All his friends are sleeping, and he's weeping all alone. And the man of all sorrows never forgot what sorrows carried by the hearts that he bought. So when the questions dissolve into the silence of God, the aching may remain, but the breaking does not. The aching may remain, but the breaking does not. The holy, lonesome echo of the silence of God. So what do we do now? In, in light of who he is, in light of what he's, what, how he's revealing himself in this passage, difficult as that, may, as that may be, what should we do? How should we live? I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare try to guess all that the Spirit of God may be speaking to us this morning. Uh, his thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways are above our ways. So my first encouragement is to uh, take these next moments as we sing together to digest, continue to seek the Lord. Ask him to speak to you where you are. He's able to do immeasurably, measurably more and ask or even imagine. So don't be boxed in Bible attempt to suggest how he may be calling you personally to respond. Uh, this is not going to be an active list of possible obedient steps from this passage because the word of God is living and active. And Jesus wants to speak to each of us, young and old, right where we're today. With that said, I think that there are a few ways that the Lord may be, may be calling uh, us to react in light of this passage. And uh, his word, always, always a response. So I'd ask you to give each of these some consideration. First, believe in his love and receive it. That may be, that may be you to do today. Jesus loved you so much that he paid with his own blood the wages of sin, death, on your behalf. He died for you. All the hottest moments in your life are only shadows cast by the radiance of his glory. And all the lowest and valleys of despair in your life were only meant to expose your need for him to cause you to look up at Jesus, Jesus, the great lover of our souls, who will one day Wipe away every tear from, tear from our eyes. He loves you and wants you to know and experience his love. Believe it and receive his love today. The second possible thing to consider 
is that he does everything for his glory and he doesn't share his glory. Maybe if you're you're really honest with yourself, you spend a lot of time telling others about your achievements, your talents, your degrees, your salary, your, your car, your sports team, your dog, your last ski line, your marathon time, your new guitar, your yard, how hard, how early walked or potty trained, or how much you don't care that they're not potty trained yet, Elston. Listen, God, who spoke all things in, in, and holds all things together by the power of his word, is not impressed by our achievements. The Bible says that, that all righteousness is as filthy rags, polluted garments. Literally, the Hebrew there, menstrual cloths. Filthy, filthy. that's what our says. Our achievements are nothing. We are helpless. If you're constantly finding your finding your justifying yourself, then what God would have you do today is cease striving. Know that He is God. He is both the just and the justifier. While while we still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians. 2, 8, and 9, remember, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Maybe you are worn out out this morning because you keep trying to do something Jesus has already done for you. Believe in his love. love. Rest in it. And lastly, if, if you've been pleading for comfort, and heaven's only answer is the silence of God. Lean on, your, lean on your friend. You're not alone. Mary and Martha were Jesus's friends, and they asked for help. They didn't even make a specific request. Isn't that beautiful? They just said, Jesus, your friend whom you love is sick. That, that was it. That was the message that they sent. They trusted simply in Jesus' love's friend, that Jesus would know and do what's best. The Bible says, cast your burdens onto Jesus, for he cares for you. Maybe you've been carrying a burden alone, or you just don't hear God responding when you plead with him. Uh, Many of our church family are going to be standing here on the edges of the room, in just a moment, to pray with you. In fact, prayer team and band, you can come on forward. Friends, these saints will bear your burdens with you. If you need to receive the love and grace of Jesus today, if you stop justifying yourself and experience the freedom that Jesus offers today, if you just need us, need to stand with you in the silence, and petition Jesus who loves you. Come and speak with, speak with prayer volunteers during this next song. Uh, it would be our greatest joy today to pray with you and guide you as you respond to the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, you are holy and you good. You are great, you are above all, all others, yet you condescend to know, know us. You're called our friend, 
Lord, I, Lord, I pray your grace and your power and your majesty that you would draw us nearer wherever we are, Lord. Today, in the hearing of my voice, would you draw your children closer to you? Lord, I pray that you would uh, us to a place of deeper understanding and knowledge of who you are, um, that your love would be sweeter to us as we under, understand that even when we were sinners, when we were your enemies, when we had rejected you, you, you loved us. You came and you gave, you gave your for us. Lord, I pray that we would cease and know that you are God. And Lord, that you would help us to support one another as we as we walk life and learn how to trust you and learn how to follow you and learn how to hear you. God, we thank you for your word and your spirit and your church. In Jesus, Jesus' name, amen.